0: Support for Jazz About Work comes from Ohio University's Online Master's Degree in Sustainability, Security, and Resilience. Does your organization or community have a workable plan for when a catastrophe strikes? This 18-month online degree program will give you the skills you need to prepare for, respond to, and recover from natural disasters and other crises. Participants earn three stackable certificates in community risk and resilience, change management and leadership, and planning resilient systems, leading to a full master's degree. Students learn cutting-edge skills in sustainability assessment and entrepreneurship, sustainable agriculture, energy policy, and more. This is an exciting, growing field, and no GRE test is required to apply. For more information, follow the link in the description on this podcast.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Just About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm Bev Jones, your host. And if you're a regular here, you know I'm an executive coach and my latest book is Find Your Happy at Work. Our topic today is the changing world of higher education. Our guest is Dave Goldberg. He's a respected computer scientist, and until 2010, he was a professor emeritus with heaps of publications about genetic algorithms. Then his career turned and he became an early advocate of radically changing engineering education. Now, he is known as an academic innovator and an international thought leader in the movement to reboot higher ed. Dave will tell us about his new book, A Field Manual for a Whole New Education. He'll talk about how transforming the college experience should start with unleashing students. Dave was one of the first to understand the power of machine learning and AI. But he'll talk about what really matters is returning the human connection to the classroom. And he'll explain why faculty need coaching skills and not just expertise. Dave, thanks so much for coming back to Jazzed About Work. We always have such interesting conversations, and I always learn from you. So I'm thrilled you're here to talk again about what is going to happen with higher ed? Thanks for being here.
2: Bev, it's uh, great to be back again, and I appreciate uh,
1: you having me on the show. Well, of course, today what we're really going to focus on is your new book, A Field Manual for a Whole New Education. But I think that the book is very much shaped by your own experiences and those of your co-author, Mark Somerville, Um and I'd I'd like to start with you telling us a little bit about how you went from being a highly successful professor emeritus with all kinds of publications and awards to somebody who was questioning higher ed, and in fact has become a real innovator. Would you Would you tell us about how that change happened?
2: Well, you know, I didn't I didn't start out in in any of my career to be a college professor or or any of these things, I started out, uh, uh, I I started out to be an engineer and worked as an engineer and uh, discovered that I really did want to go back and get a PhD. And, and, and as in life, you know, one thing leads to um, leads to another, but I was always interested even as a grad student in uh, the history of of my profession, of the things that I did. So I was interested in the history of engineering. I was interested in the uh, history of fluid mechanics, which was my specialty area. And um, when I, I I came back to, um, I, I came back, got my PhD, uh, worked at the University of Alabama uh, for about six years, went to the University of Illinois. And then somewhere after I, I made it to full professors, I was asked to uh, Go to the dean's office and uh, be a an, uh, rotating assistant dean, part time, half time. So I would I would counsel students and and but I was really excited to find out, um, you know, look behind the curtain and see how people planned for uh, the next great things in education. And I got to this, the the dean's office and I real I realized that people really weren't thinking about it. And so in 1994, I, I wrote a a, a piece for the uh, uh, Association, uh, American Society for Engineering Education, a journal of engineering education called Change in Engineering Education. And uh, this was back in 1994. And I showed it to my dean and and uh, he was upset with me. He said, how dare I question the the research basis of the modern university? And And so I said, okay, well, I'm I'm just going to go back and mind my own business, and but the paper, the paper ended up winning a best paper award, and so I knew I was onto something. But I kind of just went back to being a normal professor and writing research papers and doing my work in, um, in both fluid mechanics and artificial intelligence, uh, and uh, but then uh, one thing led to another you know, later on in my career, and I was sitting around with a colleague. And we were talking about innovation and entrepreneurship, and uh, uh, and, uh, and and he got all excited. He said, "I'm going to go to the dean, and and we're gonna and uh, we're gonna do something about this. We're going to change engineering education." I said, "Sure." Uh, this was my buddy Andreas Cangularis, who went on to be dean of engineering at Illinois, and went, is a uh, now president of a university in Saudi Arabia. But um, but at the time, he was just a, another professor, and we were sitting around talking about stuff. And and so he comes back, and and he says, Dave, I'm all excited. And the dean has decided that we're going to appoint, he's going to appoint a committee, and you and I will help him write the charge for the committee. And I I looked at him and I said, Andreas, that's nice. But I actually was ticked off. I said, Andreas, I am not going to serve on another committee that writes a report and doesn't do something. And he was, yeah. Andreas was shocked. And I, I said, and, and no, I'm not going to do it. I said, but I went back and thought about it. So I, I, I wrote the start of a white paper on a change initiative called iFoundry, the Illinois Foundry for Inno- Innovation and Engineering Education. And, uh, and uh, the dean wasn't interested in that he was interested in this committee but we went ahead and did kind of bootstrapped uh, and we brought students and faculty and, and faculty from other colleges other than engineering together to try to change engineering education and one thing led to another and it was actually it was actually successful so that was around 2006-7 and by 2010 i was a going concern the dean finally embraced it gave it some money and we had actually nudged the culture, and I said, "Wow, this is really cool." And um, and then actually, it was about that time that that you and I met, um, Bev. I was looking for career advice, and I was darn, I was I was determined to become a department head or a dean or something. And you asked me what my Plan B was, and uh, oh yes, and and uh, my Plan B was, um, and actually, part of the story was that I, um, I was looking for a job I got turned down by a job. Uh, it was actually to be head of engineering education at Purdue and uh, I pulled out a piece of paper wrote down plan B um, uh, start a uh, change initiative a, start a company, uh, leave the University of Illinois and go out into the world and, and change engineering education. And so it was actually that was, that was around 20, uh, 2010. Uh, Sometime after we had met, and uh, and uh, I I talked about it in uh, with my associate dean, and and uh, and and was offered a contract post post retirement uh, to to continue to help the University of Illinois. I had uh, interest from both Brazil and China in going to help them, and so in 2010 I resigned my tenure and left the University of Illinois uh, and went out into the world to. With my company Three Joy to help help figure out how to make make change elsewhere around the world. So that was, I mean, it's just one of those things that sort of one thing led to another. But it all, uh, looking back, it kind of all made sense. But it wasn't anything that was was planned a priori.
1: Well, your Plan B has turned out pretty well. You've been all over the world. You've worked with lots of different organizations and in, in different countries, um, and I think that. You have been ahead of the curve as change, the wave of change has been developing. One of the um, things you talk about in your book, and I I love the concept, but it takes a second to understand what you're talking about. That's the concept of student unleashing as um, central to to making higher education suited to our complicated, digital, fast-moving world. So. What do you mean by unleashed from, and, and how does that change the traditional way that uh, higher ed has been for years and years and years? Well,
2: and actually to, to define unleashing, you know, you can imagine it, it is kind of what the word implies, but actually it's, you can sort of, you can define unleashing um, by, um, by what it is not. Um, so actually, and we do an exercise with this in our 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 webin- in our webinars, in our in person seminars, and training um, with faculty. We say, well, uh, we do an exercise called the students today are not dot dot dot, and we have and we have faculty tell us what students are not. And so they tell us they're not engaged, they're not literate, they're not um, they're not uh, uh, they're not uh, mathematically rigorous if they're in engineering. So we get we get a, this long list of what students are not. Um, but but then the and then we and then, but then we then after we get this and, they're, and and faculty are pretty enthusiastic about creating that list of what students are not. But they're but basically it's a lack of engagement. But then we then we give examples of where students are engaged. Um, and do all kinds of things that are incredible. So, for example, when even in my my body of knowledge comes from, from engineering. So in engineering schools, there are lots of extracurricular design competitions. You can design Baja uh, cars that uh, go off road and race. You can design concrete canoes if you're a civil engineer or human-powered helicopters if you're an aerospace engineer and so on and so forth. And in 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 those student organizations, students spend, you know, tons of hours ex, at night, staying up late, working on these designs, uh, and they're totally engaged, and they're told and and um, they learn what they have to learn all by themselves. And so it's that kind of engagement. It's that kind of where students are unleashed to their own power and their own. Um, um, and and their own understanding of of how things can be better and improved that that we're talking about when we talk about unleashing and so the the primary puzzle is well what is it about the way we're educating students that ha- makes it easy for us to fill out the list of what they are not versus the things uh, the 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 kind of student that we would like to have the student who is Motivated to learn, the student who digs into things on their own without prompting, who doesn't fall asleep in class, who isn't uh, there uh, uh, browsing the web while uh, during during a lecture, and and it's that kind of disparity that we try to uh, point out. And and you know, in the in in the in the first in the first book that Mark and I wrote, the uh, the whole new engineer, we said there were five pillars of engin- of unleashing. Uh, joy, trust, courage, openness, and uh, connectedness, collaboration and community and but I think the key one is uh, courage. so how do we how do we teach, how do we cultivate students to have courage to do what hasn't been done in an entrepreneurial world how do we get students to be entrepreneurial as opposed to follow the um, strictly following the beaten path. And so it's, that's, what, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about um, unleashing.
1: Well, how does that compare with the way faculties have been taught to teach for, for centuries?
0: Yeah, for
2: centuries. And, you know, the university is an ancient place, but it's actually interesting. The, the origins of the university and the University of Bologna Faculty responded to students because students paid the faculty. It was a, when the city fathers of Bologna handed over the money to professors and made professors in charge. Um, things changed radically and have been that way ever ever since. But that one way to think about the university, even back to those early days, is as a community of experts in little chunks of knowledge, and um, and so. Uh, Professors are, are, are trained as part of their both undergraduate and graduate training to become expert in some fairly narrow body of knowledge. And they get hired by an expert faculty that, that, um, that teaches that, that knowledge. And, and they get up and what the, the classic phrase is, they become the sage on the stage and go up and give lectures on that material. Um, and uh, and students are supposed to master it, and and the, the mastery of that material then is passed on when when some of them become uh, professors, and and that's that's the way the whole thing has has worked for centuries. Um, but the idea of of actually engaging students in uh, like the examples I gave with engineering students and design competitions in actually practicing and. And, and using their knowledge to do something with it is, has been um, not, not a foreign concept. It's been there in, in, in small pieces, but it, it hasn't been the central, the central operating system of the university. And actually, that's, I like to think of it that way. The, the central operating system of the university has been this kind of uh, assembly of experts, and part of part of the problem that we face today, uh, ever since the the web came into being and 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 Google search became a commonplace, has been the easy access that people have to expertise. So, um, expertise and expert codified knowledge have become commodified in ways that um, diminish the returns to expertise that are at the root of what the. The university does, and so it's it's that kind of um, sage on the stage giving uh, casting pearls to the swine of students um, <laughs> has become has become uh, has become kind of a, a problematic. Where it, once it actually it didn't work, it didn't work badly, but now it, um, we need something else. Especially, actually, Google is one thing but generative AI like ChatGPT and, and so forth are another. And so now we can query these systems that give us, um, you know, well-formed paragraphs of, of uh, summarizing the things that are out there um, on, on the web in, in ways that um, uh, actually really cheapen um, the value of just, just having expertise is no longer worth what it once was. And so what is it, what is it that we should be, what is it and how is it that should we be training the next uh, the next generation of professional?
1: Well, part of getting to the specific of what and how is starting by changing the culture. You you say in your book that uh, higher ed needs a, a new kind of culture. So when you're talking about culture first, what is your definition of culture in this context and what kind of culture do you think we need to see for, for a new kind of higher ed? Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, a lot of people
2: use the term culture and then then don't define it. And I, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not an expert in culture, but I like, I like Ed Schein's um, Ed Jain worked at MIT for many years. I think he's, uh, he's out on the West Coast now, but uh, and I quote this in, in the field manual and I'll just read it now, but his definition is short, but I think it gets at, the, at some of the key points. Culture is a pattern of shared tacit assumptions that was learned by a group as it solved problems of external adaptation and internal integration that has worked well enough to be considered valid and therefore to be taught to new members as the correct way to perceive and feel in relation to those problems. So it's 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 the tacit assumptions that we have um, that kind of uh, shape how we deal with day-to-day interactions. And then he also said there are three levels and I find these three levels really helpful in getting people to see their the cultures they're in uh, better to become amateur anthropologists. Um, uh, there's a level of artifacts and those can be those can be words or actual physical artifacts um, like so if you have a big lecture hall with blackboards or whiteboards in the front of it and and rows and rows of seats for a thousand people in them that that artifact shapes some of the assum- or is basically a manifestation of the tacit assumptions about how people learn and then there are the espoused values of the organization and then there are the underlying assumptions of the uh, of the organization according to Shine, and so um and and those things are and that and part of the problem is the underlying assumptions or the tacit assumptions that are in in Shine's definition are so deep that we don't even think about them so um uh, there was an a, there was this wonderful article by um um, uh, uh, Carl Rogers, um, in the, uh, it was published in the fifties you know, or sixties where he talked about, uh, he, he talked about the, some of the assumptions that we, uh, we make about students. And one of them is that, uh, students cannot be trusted, um, with even small amounts of their, um, their own learning. And that, uh, uh, Learning is the brick by brick accumulation of the little bits of expert knowledge, and and they're so deep and so embedded in in the culture of higher education that we we can't even think about them. we there. We we and and to question them is to to be like my former dean, uh, uh, and 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 be uh, be appalled that uh, that a faculty member would even start to think about some of the, the the things that underline underlay the culture but um it's it's those kinds of things that we have you know, where how can we how can we change some of those underlying assumptions that students actually can um actually have motive to uh be be better learners than they are and to be entrusted um, with some of the things that um, some of the elements of their own uh, learning in, in ways that we typically have not done in the past.
1: Well, in the book, you talk about how um, the difficult task of changing a very intense uh, ancient culture is not yep. easy, but part of it starts with um, having members of the community, and I I guess that means both faculty and and administrators and students, having everybody start to develop a different skill set, a broader, maybe more enlightened skill set. You talk about um, some of the skills that sometimes people talk about as soft skills, uh, and, and you and I have talked about them in other contexts when we talk about what does it take to be a coach. Uh, there's a lot of uh, coaching i think in your approach but but tell us this the kind of um, skills that that people need to have if we're all going to participate in change for the community the academic community
2: well i, I like to um, and you're right there is a lot of there is a lot of coaching in in the approach and one of the things um, you know i met you and you um, you were my coach. Uh, and, and then I went and was trained as a coach. And, um, I remember the, I, I, and I remember asking you about, well, where did you learn how to be a coach? And we talked about Georgetown. And I remember the first day of Georgetown, uh, where I was there with 35 other student coaches and I walked in and, and, um, and I don't remember who our instructor was that first day, but they, they asked us to go around the room and introduce ourselves. And about, about two minutes after that, they, they asked us the question, what do you notice? And I got, I got pissed off again. I said, what do you mean, <laughs> what do I notice? I just paid five figures to come here. I traveled from, from Illinois to come to Washington DC. And you're asking me what I noticed. When are we gonna actually learn some real coaching skills? And of course, I was, I, I was as, that uh, was as, that assessment was as strong and premature as it was wrong. And I real, and later realized that a lot of coaching was about noticing, but uh, also part of the coaching uh, training is to, that, that noticing is, is, is part of listening and questioning in ways. And it seems to me that the, the bedrock skill of, of, making change in universities, and also being prepared for a world of AI um, is is those three skills, what I call NLQ, noticing, listening, and questioning, which I put together under the rubric of curious listening. But if you were to, um, there's this nice story in uh, um, uh, Duhigg's uh, book, The Power of Habit, where he talks about <clears throat> alcoa aluminum making change uh, when their uh, when their CEO Paul O'Neill focused on safety and everyone in the company thought he was nuts to focus on safety because alcoa was in big trouble and they they needed to make financial changes and so forth but he insisted no let's let's focus on safety and then safety inculcated the habits, Of that, that would return the company to profitability and make it a good company again. It seems to me that if we that if that people could say the same thing about curious listening, but if there's like one habit or one keystone habit that we could inculcate to actually make fundamental change in the university, it would be NLQ this, this, the noticing, listening, and and questioning would help us understand what's wrong with education and then also give us the, the primary pr- primary tool to fix
1: it. Well, I, that, by the way, is my favorite book on habit. It's a terrific book. And I love the um, idea of thinking of part of what is happening that's not changing. It's just habits that are so much part of, of university life. So now if we want to get new habits, including noticing, listening, yeah. and questioning, uh, yeah. we've got to figure out where to begin. And this brings us to what you call kind of shifts, uh, changes yeah. in skill and mindset. Uh, tell us about your idea of the shifts that have to take place if we're going to have a whole new education
2: well and the, the shifts are partially they're they're both mindsets that need to shift as well as a set of skills that need to shift and so I, I count five of them and uh, different people might count count differently but um, the 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 first, the first shift is sort of this goes back to what we were talking about before. We were talking, I was talking about the operating system of the university, being a, a an operating system of expertise, kind of a, this community of experts idea. So, and and there's this wonderful um, book. It's an old book already uh, uh, by Don Shun. Again, I'm not picking on MIT, but. Um, but he was a philosopher at MIT and he wrote this book called The Reflective Practitioner. And, and he made an interesting distinction. He said that, you know, sometimes we think of, um, we think of, um, you know, how do we think of practice? And he said, you know, there's one view of practice where we think of it as uh, he called it technical rationality. And, And for him, technical for Uh, for for Donshun, the technical rationality is this idea that practice is merely the application of well-vetted theory to particular situations. So that's one view of practice. And he said, that's not necessarily wrong, but it's kind of limited and it's kind of the cheap version of practice. Uh, If something's well understood, then the practitioner is just kind of going through algorithmic motions to kind of... to make something in a practical setting, and and that's not kind of the interesting stuff. He said the interesting stuff of practice is what he called uh, reflection and action. The the and and reflection and action is kind of either is uh, it's kind of a dialectic. It can, can be an introspective dialectic, or it can be a dia, an actual dialectic between it, between different individuals, and and it's fundamentally. Um, I actually I don't think um, this was uh, Shun's term, but I I use the term conversation in action. That a lot of a lot of pra- of actual practice, leadership practice, managerial practice, engineering practice, legal practice is fundamentally a conversation. And the the interesting part of, of of practice is this this dialectic. Well, what is the problem? It's it's a little bit Socratic, where you kind of well. Yeah, what is really going on here? And well, I think it's this. No, I think it's that. And this is this back and forth to actually get at what's going on in a particular situation. And and, and Shun's book was masterful. He went through different professions. There's an example of of uh of a master and apprentice architect querying a a a site. Or the location of a business, and or or a, uh, a psychotherapist was another chapter. It gives different examples of uh, what deep practice actually is. But it seems to me that this is this this is the first of of the shifts. So how do we shift from the notion that practice is merely the application of well vetted theory in particular situations to the idea that practice is um, this conversation, this reflection in action, um, this dialectic around what what a problem is—it's sort of the difference between sort of problem solving and problem finding, um, and then problem re- you know problem resolution after we figured out what the the problem is. So it's 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 that tension. And and so when you look at you know my own uh, you know, my own profession, you look at engineering. We do a lot about teaching the theory. We do very little about teaching students to, ha- to have these dialectical conversations around what's really going on in a problem. And and it seems to me that that's where, that's the deeper stuff that we need to get into. And it's also, if you now think about this AI world that we're living in, if we've got chat GPT 6, 10 coming along that can do more and more, what is it doing? It's, that system is basically doing the first, it's doing the technical rationality part of Don Shun's so, vision.
1: So so what happens? Uh, this is a question, I, uh, but what I hear from you and read from you is that what happens in the new world if things um, do shift is that people will recognize memorizing expertise is not enough because expertise is cheap. It's out there now, but yes. it's the human interaction around expertise and putting it to use, creating new things, interacting um, that matters. And, and, and it's people talking to one another and yep. experiencing emotion and understanding. And it's, it's a, there's a deeper level of human Engagement and connection in yeah. the new vision. It's not yeah. just a stack of books. Is that right? Yes, I think so. And
2: so, starting from that first shift of okay, that what we need to move from sort of this. And and by the way, the it's the shifts, and uh, uh, we want both sides. So to do engineering requires a massive amount of theory. To be a lawyer requires. Knowledge of the law, so nobody's saying that we don't need those things, but the but the easy part is kind of the the rational part, um, especially in a world uh, full full of AI. The how do we how do we bring in how do we bring in this more human part, and in a, in a world of um, uh, human competitive AI, how how do we find a place for human workers that where the 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 AI isn't actually good at doing the stuff that that humans actually can do, and so um, it, it is a. It is, so, so, so for example, we can see this. Um, we can see this easily in, in say, the second shift. The second shift, I, I um, call the brain on a stick shift, um, and and it's based on a. A, a cartoon is from a PhD comics, which you can find online. Um, but the, the first panel of the cartoon is a young woman uh, researcher in a research lab. And, uh, and then the, it, in the, in the panel, it says, here's a person full of um, aspiration, um, passion, so and so forth. In the next panel, um, it, it shows a, a, a thick picture of a brain on a stick and the and the research professor is asking from the sidelines so how's how's research going and yeah. so so we are embodied human beings we have feelings we have emotions we are more than just technical rationality and so and part of part of what makes us interesting and is is that we use our emotions uh, in an intuitive way to guide us to things that haven't been thought of very much or uh, to find lacunae in the well-vetted theory. And so it's it's the it's the kind of emotional part, the passion to find out new things that drives us to do things that haven't been done. And so-
1: So this, t- this takes us, us back right. to AI, doesn't it? By um, it does. showing that we are what AI cannot be we are yes um, yes yeah. we are we are very different and that's what you're you're bringing to light here well I'm looking at the clock um, time has been flying by um, yes. and and so for the rest of the shifts and all of your good suggestions we're going to have to suggest that um, listeners go to your book the um, the full name of the book with the the whole title is A Field Manual for a Whole New Education, Rebooting Higher Education for Human Connection and Insight in a Digital World. Now, I I know this is kind of a workbook, and it's it's not just a bunch of expertise. It's suggestions, and it gives um, guidance for how people can create change. I think this is going to be an interesting book for leaders, but I, I suspect you're audience is much bigger than that. So is my last question here is, who might find this book interesting? Who were you writing the book for?
2: Well, I'm, I'm writing the book for, so the book's aimed at higher education. I've been I've, online, I've had conversations with people from, you know, K-12. Uh, can we use these ideas here? Yes, I think you can, but I, I don't have experience there. So I don't feel comfortable saying yes without, without having, having done it. Um, can you use these ideas outside of education circles? I think so. But many of the ideas we borrowed from classical change leadership and change management, uh, and brought them to the university, which really, uh, is behind the curve in terms of making, making change. So I I think I'm talking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to leaders of, um, university presidents, I'm talking to deans, I'm talking to department heads. And and a lot of the work that I've done has been more grassroots and kind of bottom up from the departmental level. You know, how do we practically change a curriculum? Or how do we practically uh, bring change to our school or our college? Um, uh, But I'm also talking to individual professors, because my own experiences were grassroots and come from rejecting the You know, go back to our original story. I rejected the invitation to be on a committee because I think there are a lot of people out there that are sick and tired of being on committees that never do anything. And so I'm writing. So if you're a professor, or actually if you're a student who's interested in bringing change to your education, uh, I think the book is could be of interest to you. I think it it um, it it, there's actually a lot of there's a lot of um, books out right now from college presidents. Decrying the inability of the university to change, but I, I think they're wrong. I think the university can change, but you, you need to know how to change, and you need to know where the bodies are buried. What to change, uh, to actually make a difference, and I think that's what the book is about.
1: Well, it's a good book. I enjoyed it. I um, always enjoy your conversation, and I know you're always ahead of the curve. So, uh. Whatever you're thinking about, it gives me ideas about what I should be thinking about. So thanks for being here, David. It, it was great fun to have you.
2: Thanks, Beth. Thanks for having me.
1: Today, we've been talking with Dave Goldberg about how and why to reboot higher education. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media, Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work, and our sponsor is the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Service at Ohio University. Today's tip is that technical skills are not enough. For most people, relationship skills are key to a rewarding career, and that can mean something as simple as getting comfortable with small talk. Thanks for listening to just About Work. We hope you come back soon.